It's time for the letter of the day. This episode of My Seminary Life is brought to you by the letter Theta. Theta is for Thermopylae, the letter Theta. Welcome back to My Seminary Life. I'm your host, Brandon Knight. This is our series, Ancient Greece. And in today we are going to, in today's episode, we're going to continue talking about ancient Greece, looking at a particular group of Greeks at a particular battle and a particular film that covers the subject. I'm talking, of course, of the Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae and the movie 300. And in order to have this conversation, I've got one of our guests from last week's episode back here with me today. You got a little bit of a residency going on here. Uh, he is oh, yeah. one of the priests, one of the priests to the geeks at Systematic Ecology and the host of the Let Nothing Move You podcast, which you can catch also here on AMP. Uh, Christian Ashley. Christian, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Brandon. I'm glad to be back for a, such an important film like this. It, you know, it was life changing to say the least. <laughs> As a young man at that time, absolutely, absolutely. So, before we get into this conversation, I want to run two quick disclaimers. Okay, maybe three. The third one is a very broad, general disclaimer of: if you're not familiar with this movie, just a heads up. It's not for children. This is not even remotely. The fact that two Christians are getting together to talk mostly positively about this movie is a little surprising, but we're going to do it. So that's like a broad disclaimer. Uh, Number two, for anyone coming into this episode for the very first time, uh, this is going to be uploaded also onto the Systematic Ecology feed. So if, you, if you've never checked out the show before, uh, what's going on here in our Ancient Greece series is we're looking at this very specific time in Greek history, the height of the Greek Empire, classical Greece, and looking at how their philosophy, politics, classical literature, mythology, how it influenced the context of the New Testament and also our current context today. So that's, that's what we're doing here. For the MSL listeners, just so you know, there will be theology, there will be critical thinking, as you come to expect here at MSL. Um, But just so the MSL listeners are aware, as opposed to last week when we talked about the 1981 classic film Clash of the Titans and Christian and myself and Pastor Will just gushed over it for 40 minutes. uh, This week, we're probably going to get very technical. We're going to not probably we are going to get very technical. And by technical, I mean extremely geeky. So. I, I'm not going to try to lose you. I don't want to lose you in all of this, but I, just fair warning, we're going to talk about 90s comic books, which is like the Wild West of comics. So just just buckle up. It's going to be a lot of fun, though. With that in mind, where I want to start this conversation, Christian, I need to stop talking. Where I want to start this conversation at, Christian, is actually at that modern context. My question for you is, how popular are the Spartans still today? Is is Sparta still that big of a deal for us here in modern America? I'd argue a little bit, yes. Uh, not as much as when this film was released. But like, if you go to like a layman out in the streets and you mention Sparta, like they're probably going to know what you're talking about. Oh, it's a region of Greece, the ancient warriors, blah, blah, blah. 
You know, people are going to know about 300. People are going to know about Assassin's Creed Odyssey or something like that where they showed up. Um, but, I mean, there's people... I mean, typically, I don't meet a lot of history scholars out there, but I know it. there's enough out there that would at least know the name. Yeah, I think you would get a lot of people who know the name. Um, it is worth pointing out that there are a lot of things named after the Spartans. We have, like, the Spartan race, or there's... I don't know how military stuff works, but like certain branches of the military have subgroups that are named after Spartan, Spartan Battalion, Spartan this, Spartan that. So I, I agree. I think when this movie came out, uh, this was pro- that was probably the height of the popularity of Sparta. But you're right. It, it seems like we all kind of have this working knowledge of it was those warrior guys in Greece so pretty much yeah so we still have this influence today whether it's just a general knowledge of sparta or some people you know their idea of sparta lines up with their idea of masculinity you know tough guys working out the spray painted abs you know just like or you know tough warriors and that's like part of their persona as a person This movie came out in 2006. So my question for you is, what were you doing in 2006? Because we were both around for this one. We weren't around for Clash of the Titans when it came out in 81, but we were around in 2006. Oh, yes. 2006, I was entering high school. So there's that lovely, rough period of life that everyone always enjoys. Nothing ever goes bad there. And like, yeah. And it's actually funny around when this film released, I have a special tie to it because I wanted to see it. I saw all the trailers, but like just couldn't get the DVDs just yet. But my dad was on a mission trip in China and Mongolia. And while he was in Beijing, he <laughs> he got a, a very, uh, let's just say, uh, illegal copy of the film there, widescreen uh, poor subtitles, all that mess, and brought it back with him to America. And that's how I got to see the film for the first time. That's awesome. That is not the kind of gift. I think when missionaries have brought me stuff before, I don't think I've ever gotten a bootleg of a movie that was in theaters. Um, nice. That's that's a pretty good story. I like that a lot. Was this oh, yeah. a common thing? Did you get a lot of bootlegs from your missionary or father? Or? No, that, that was like the one mission trip I remember him going on. Uh, okay. But, I mean, we also went to Comic-Con at HeroCon every now and then. And they've, they've stopped doing this at this point in time now that people have cracked down. But there used to be some, uh, let's say, bootleg editions of older cartoons and anime that you can't get anymore in that sense because well it's frowned upon now but he would definitely do that then my dad did that a lot too we had the uh the roger corman fantastic four movie from 1994 you know the one that was destroyed and never released but somehow is currently on youtube that you can stream for free wink wink um (laughs) yeah bootlegs man i've got a bootleg i think somewhere of the green hornet tv show with uh, bruce lee yeah that's one. Yes. That one's hard to find. Anyway, uh, so you were entering high school when this movie came out, got to see a bootleg version of it. Uh, as for me, I, I'm a couple years younger. I was middle school, sixth grade, seventh grade when this movie came out and knew absolutely positively that there was no chance I was going to see this movie. Not a chance in the world. It looked really cool, but I knew, you know, sometimes my dad was able to like, finagle things to be able to take me to go to the movies i was a kind of i want to say sheltered but a little bit certain things were off limits um so yeah it was a while after this movie had come out before i was finally able to watch it um i enjoyed it do you like this movie let's just you know good bad otherwise what do you think i love this movie not for its accuracy not for some of the messages it portrays, but because it's a dumb action flick, you know, that did inspire me to learn more about the actual history behind it because I knew there's something screwy going on here. But like, 
it's about a bunch of really buff guys killing a bunch of really buff guys. And like at the end of the day, isn't that what every boy likes to watch? Yeah, I mean, you're talking to the guy who regularly watches pro wrestling. So obviously that's that's what we want. We want meaty men <laughs> slapping meat. That's a pro wrestling line. That's even worse. Um, you know, we want we want to see guys punching things. It is refreshing that it's a group as opposed to the 80s when it was always a one man wrecking crew. We actually have a group of people. I think that's one positive we can take from this movie. Uh, you know, working as a group. That's always a good message. This movie uh, stars Gerard Butler as King Leonidas. This was my introduction to Gerard Butler. Uh, ever since then, anytime I see a movie with him, I wait for that inevitable moment when he starts yelling. It happens in all of his movies because no matter what the accent is that he's doing, he immediately becomes King Leonidas when he starts screaming. And it's directed by Zack Snyder. And Zack mm-hmm. Snyder, I don't want to say he's divisive. I don't think divisive is the right word for geeks. But people can have strong opinions of Snyder. So, Christian, what's your take? Zack Snyder, good or bad? Okay. Uh, sometimes he's really great. Other times, let's just say to DCEU, I am not a fan of what he's had to put out. I don't really enjoy the the darker and grittier interpretation he has of Superman and Batman and all that. But when it came to like, you know, what was it the Dawn of the Dead remake he did? I'm a huge fan of that. Mm. I like the Watchmen he did. It was a very pragmatic adaptation. Um, and of course, I love 300. So like, it depends, really. Yeah, I I think I agree with most of that. You know, I've seen just about all of his movies i haven't seen dawn of the dead or the one about owls legend of the guardians it's an animated film about owls um yeah it's fine (laughs) it's fine um 300 i would say is about 300 watchmen and i would put man of steel in there as some of his best work i really liked man of steel i do understand the constant criticism of the dceu being way too dark and gritty and i i definitely feel that sometimes yeah he's kind of this like every time i see a trailer for one of his movies it always looks good but then it's almost a coin a coin toss how it's going to turn out have you seen the trailer for rebel moon yet i have not ever since i kind of learned it was like trying to be its own star wars i'm kind of like yeah, I barely like some of what Disney is doing right now. I don't need to see what Zack Snyder has to say. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it looks interesting. For those of you who don't know, back when Disney was making the Star Wars stories films after the absolute bomb that was Solo, they canceled all the rest of the projects. And some of them have turned into streaming series like Kenobi. Uh, one of them was going to be directed by Zack Snyder. It was an original script he had wrote. And after they canceled the project and Warner Brothers said, okay, Zack, we're done with you. Netflix has embraced Zack Snyder with loving open arms. Make Mm -hmm. all of your movies for us. And uh, it's coming out. I think it's November Rebel Moon. It's supposed I watched the trailer and even though this was like Star Wars originally, it really looks more Dune. I'm getting major okay. Dune vibes from it. There's a lot of like simplistic sci-fi, you know, kind of like the Dune, like they have swords, you know, in Dune, things like yeah. that. Well, that makes sense. You know, Star Wars was very inspired by Dune. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of both. Yeah. Snyder, though. Yeah. He's when he's on, he's on. And when he's off, it's like, oh, this is this is rough. Uh, and he's I, I he's one of those directors that I feel like I should like because I like guys who have a very clear aesthetic and style. Guillermo del Toro, Robert Rodriguez, Sam Raimi. When you're watching their movies, you know it's one of their movies. And Snyder's the same way. There's always the wide scene, the wide cut scene that you can see, like you know, a big shot of the scenery, an ironic use of a pop song. Um, usually, there's a 300 Easter egg somewhere hiding in the film. 
even he yeah. knows this is his best one um but yeah <laughs> but yeah you know he's all right i'll give rebel moon a try okay i'll let you i'll let you know how it is i might watch the owl movie that. sometime too yeah yeah <laughs> So this movie is available on Max for anybody who wants to stream it. But as we mentioned, Christian, this is a graphic novel. This is a movie based on a graphic novel written by Frank Miller. That's based on a historical event. But for those of you who are unfamiliar with ancient historians, they're even more slanted and have an agenda than modern historians are really so there's a lot of narrative here there's a lot of narratives being intertwined here baseline christian what is this movie about baseline this is in the world of this film versus actually history this is uh sparta is a part of greece and the fact that they are like grecian by culture but they're not united and they get a messenger from Persia, which is coming there to take over their country. And they're giving Leonidas, our king here, the chance to you know, submit. And therefore, he can stay in charge, but he has to bend the knee, as it were, to uh, King Xerxes. But he's not doing that. They're a warrior people. They're not going to go down line. So he disregards all the rules and everything else. And he brings his small band of warriors on like a, a little vacation, as it were, to... Uh, Defend Greece at Thermopylae, Thermopylae, however the heck you want to pronounce it. And this is where we get the ultimate showdown of ultimate destiny between the hundreds of thousands of Persian soldiers and the immortals and the elephants and rhinos they have uh, to fight against these 300 Spartans who are defending this very small location where their uh, phalanx can work well against them, going up against each other. But it's doomed to fail. They're betrayed by one of their own who is for the sake of the, the graphic novel and this film turned into a very deformed person because only evil people look like that. And yeah, that's something else we could talk about later on and they are all wiped out, but one of them is able to come back, inspire the rest of uh, his people to rally up against the Persians and ends with them like fighting against them and winning. And that's our film. Yeah, this is um, based off of a famous battle within the Persian War. This is the war between Greece and Persia. And there's it's interesting because there's a lot of these moments, as opposed to last week when we were talking about Clash of the Titans. And I think I asked you, because I knew you're a big mythology guy. I was like, so how close is this even to the actual legend of Perseus and you're like well seeing how there's Norse mythology in here with a kraken and Pastor Will brought up afterwards so shout out to Pastor Will I did not know this but clearly the mechanical owl has nothing to do with the original thing as well but actually was supposed to try and cash in on the popularity of R2-D2 did not know that thank you Will for sharing that with me Uh, there's a lot of inaccuracies when it comes to this film. And in some cases, it's hard to tell what's historical and what really did happen. We're just taking the word of it of ancient historians. So let's walk through. Okay. So we have this big battle between Sparta and Persia. What are some of the inaccuracies that we see in the movie? I think before we get there, you mentioned earlier, like the, sure. the historians that have a very biased point of view. And one of our main sources for this battle is Herodotus, who is known as the father of history. He's also known as the father of lies. <laughs> because what Herodotus did is he just went to people, said, hey, what are you doing here? What, what was this about? How did this battle happen? Or what are your customs here? And he never went to a lot of these places. He just relied on you know, traders or diplomats or stuff like that to give him this information. So he definitely seems to have talked to some of the survivors of, you know, some of these battles and put his own little Herodotus spin on some things. So even when we're dealing with the actual battle, we don't know how much we can trust. So in a way, you can say this film is close to that regard. But 
at the same time, as far as inaccuracies go, like, well, you know, it wasn't just 300 Spartans. We do see a couple of other Greek soldiers come, but like there was 300 Spartans and I think 700 Greeks as well. And then a couple of Thebans and uh, they don't mention the the helots, their slaves, True. who also uh, came and assisted in the battle. And, you know, it's not this big, you know, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's Xerxes as, and I'm going to screw up this word I always, every single time, Zoroastrian. Mm, okay. Does not think of himself as a god king. That's kind of in that religion, a uh, very big faux pas. So for him to present himself in such a way in this battle as you just worship me is kind of against his religious religious beliefs. Also, as well, the Spartans kind of have this anti-religious slant. The the fighters do because you know all the priests and whatever are corrupt and evil. But if anything, they're very even more than the Athenians sometimes are very more religious people. They're very super, not supernatural. What's the word? Superstitious. Superstitious. Kind of okay. So, yeah. So, and it's funny too. One of the other sources we have after the fact is Xenophon, who was an Athenian who actually was a mercenary for a while, came to Sparta. And that's where a lot of where we get their culture from is from him. He's hmm. essentially like history's first weeaboo. And for those of you who don't know what Weeaboo is, that's someone who really likes Japanese culture a little too much for their own good. He's essentially a Spartan Weeaboo. And <laughs> yeah. And that's where we kind of learned that Sparta was kind of like this almost ancient Greece, North Korea. And now they separated themselves from everyone else and they had these supreme leaders and they were the ones you'd listen to and all that. But yeah, I mean, there's tons of other things I can talk about. How much you, what more do you want me to go? Well, I have a couple and see maybe if you can uh, bounce off of some of these. Going back to Xerxes, uh, one thing I saw was that his depiction is absolutely wrong. This like almost nine feet tall, <laughs> completely hairless person is not accurate at all. Think like an average height, five foot six dude with a lot of hair, a long beard, you know, like how people normally looked back then. There was that yes. you mentioned earlier. It's not like an inaccuracy, but it was a choice by Frank Miller with the guy who turns on Sparta to yes. backstab him for Persia of like that really, again, based off of the accounts that did happen. They were betrayed, but the whole deformities stuff, that was a Frank Miller thing. That's not it was like a shepherd or something. And from what I read, I'm trying to think there was. Oh, there's also the most iconic scene in the movie the this is sparta kicking the emissary into the bottomless pit thing mm -hmm. so how this war does start is that persia is starting to take over neighboring countries that greece has like an alliance with and greece isn't liking that and because they're very independent. They're very independent, very free. I'm sure we'll talk more about this when we get to the politics episode here on MSL. But Greek is, Greece is starting to feel threatened. They do. Persia does send emissaries to say, hey, you can bend the knee and follow us now or get ready to fight. And Greece does brutally murder these guys just to prove a point. The whole kicking into the giant pit thing that is, again, like, it looks great. We all have the, this is Sparta, like, permanently ingrained into our minds now. But yeah, there was no cool pit kicking scene. Also, the general lack of armor, like, that's not how mm -hmm. people fight wars ever, no matter how highly trained they are. <laughs> It's there for the man service, and that's about it. It's not very practical. Yeah, yeah. This is not. This is not for like they talk about the woman gaze. No, this is for guys. A bunch of shirtless guys beating up other shirtless guys. That's that's for the men. It really is. Uh, was any other inaccuracies you'd like to highlight here before we move on? Yeah, uh, there's also that line about the Athenians being boy lovers, and like, well. Everyone was in Greece. The, the pederasty was. was a very common theme of an older man, you know, essentially taking 
uh, an apprentice or a student and like teaching him in that way uh, in a very homoerotic manner was something that you're kind of expected to do. And if you didn't, you were kind of weird. So for them to drop that line was obviously at the time when it came out, people were way more homophobic about such things. And that's the line is, oh, these are our real heroes here. They would they wouldn't do that. And like, well, my personal feelings on the side doesn't matter. Like if you're going to represent it accurate, accurately, both sides did the exact same thing. Right. And also within the context of the film, just so we're all aware, after the Spartans get brutally slaughtered here it's actually athens navy that turns the tide of the war like they're trying to portray the you know athens who is the height of culture and the you know the place where the philosophers are as kind of like the yeah but they also have like this you know this thing they're not great people well like you said they all weren't great people and yeah if it wasn't for the Navy, Sparta wouldn't have been, have been able to come back and eventually win the war against Persia. How about as we're continuing to, rather than continue to just beat on this movie, <laughs> I found a couple moments that I was surprised were accurate or as accurate mm-hmm. as we can know they are. Um, how about some let's highlight some of those. What are some of the surprisingly accurate moments within this movie? Well, they definitely got the the size and overwhelming nature of the Persian army in there. Like these are people that knew what they were doing. They were great at war. Like the Spartans are great at war, but like they only had so many numbers. Versus like depending on who you can trust when it comes to these figures, we're talking hundreds of thousands of men and slaves heading off to fight a war against Greece, which they should have curb stomped them, even on their own territory. But because you have the Athenian fleet coming in instead of a giant storm destroying the Persian fleet and engaging in battle with them, you... Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. It's just the immensity of the Persian army is something Mm -hmm. to capture really well here. And the fact that it is a very multicultural region of the world because the Persians did own a large... A portion of the world at that time. So there are plenty of people from all over. Like you have uh, representatives from Africa, you have representatives from the Middle East, and a little north, and stuff like that. So that's something they got really well. Uh, on the topic of the vast size of the army, I was surprised to find out it is a little done up for the sake of the movie, but the immortals are actually a thing this was supposed to be like xerxes or whoever was you know the royalty within persia like their special forces secret service guys it's done up still Mm -hmm. for the movie but yeah i was really surprised to find out especially since like the immortals is apparently the name too or something and if you go to the original historical sources Also, much to my surprise, the other iconic line from this movie of tonight we dine in hell is actually a recorded line that Leonidas allegedly said, which, again, it really sounds like a line for a movie. So Mm -hmm. and I think that does come from Herodotus as well. I think that's one of his sources or one of those sources that and the. uh then we will fight in the shade was also a recorded line from history. And it says it's very famous part of the Spartans was their noted laconic wit that comes from Laconia, which is the region of Greece that they lived in. And they were expected, especially then to like, not always be so grandiose in the way they responded to people. As far as like word length It's like the shorter it was, the more pithy it was, the better. And that's how, like, you definitely get that represented in what Herodotus does give us of what was said in that battle. Interesting. That I did not know. That's very interesting. They were really into pithy quotes. That's that's awesome. Good for the Spartans. <laughs> it's nice to know they had a personality outside of just being a bunch of warriors. So we've talked about... We've talked about the movie. We've talked about some of the historicalness. Are there any other like scenes you want to highlight here? You know, 
favorite parts. We talked about the iconic kicking into the pit scene. Any other like great moments you want to highlight here? Well, man, where to start with this? <laughs> There's always the the classic, you know, the wall of bodies being mm. pushed over onto. Uh, I think that's the immortals is when they first show up, right? Yeah. And that's when they prove like, oh, let's see how immortal you actually really are. And that's a great scene right there. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, Leonidas with his son. I don't know if we, he's named in the film, if it's ever oh, said. Yeah. And like him, like actually being what a Spartan would represent as a father to him, like explaining what they're all about, uh, training him, showing love in a way that only a Spartan could. I love that a lot. What about you? I forgot about that scene because it's been a while. I don't have Max, uh, so I haven't been able to watch it. Um, so it's been a while since I've seen it. I forgot about that scene. Um, yeah, like I said earlier, just the general like the camaraderie that the men have for one another. The you know you Spartans were trained from a young, very young age. They began training, and so they built bonds with their brothers in arms. And you, you see that here, this isn't like a, you know, there's a bunch of soldiers, but Johnny over here, he's going to be the one who's going to save the day. Uh, like, no, you see like the, the formation of them going into battle. And yeah, you do have the, the other thing that Zack Snyder's known for the slow motion fight sequences. Mm-hmm. So you can see a little bit of like the individual fighting. It's really cool. It's really fun. I don't know how accurate it was, but yeah, I, w- I really enjoy those. It is cool. I, another thing that's represented well, we didn't touch on this too much is that although Sparta was the city state that owned the most slaves per- paradox, paradoxically, um, they were also the city state that like gave women the highest standing yes. within the government. And you do see that here with Leonidas's wife. I forget her name now, but like Gorgo. She, yes, Gorgo. She plays an important role in keeping the political scene going while all the men are off to war. I forgot about. Yeah. So those are some of my other highlights. We've talked about the opening of the film, which definitely sets the tone for everything. And Leonidas's Mm. growth, like showing the Spartan journey of how you become a man, how you become a Spartan. And obviously there's some artistic license used here as well, because you wouldn't have been sent alone. You would have been sent in groups because to keep that camaraderie you were mentioning earlier, like that's part of what they wanted was for these young boys to work together and they wouldn't really have been fighting wolves so much as going to the Helot villages and stealing from them. And the the purpose of that was for them not to get caught. So they would get uh, punished by their commanding officers if they got caught. And But it Mm. didn't matter if a Helot got killed or anything like that because, well, they're just slaves in their mind. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of one of the twisted parts of their training. It is. Yeah. One of the resources I've been using to study up for this series we're doing um, when I got to this part at the Battle of Thermopylae and the Spartans, man, the lengths that some people go through to try and justify, defend, explain away whatever word you want to use slavery, the slavery of the Spartans, the lengths that some people go through. It's slavery. It was bad. Please stop trying to like, well, you know, all the men, they were off to war. So somebody had to keep, you know, the plants and the, the, you know, the crops and the this and the that. And it's like, okay, yeah, or everybody doesn't have to go to war. (laughs) Like, you know, or part of history. What was that? I'm sorry. That's the unfortunate part of history. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, further back we go, there's always going to be something that, you know, as we have, to an extent, in certain ways, evolved as a culture, we see that, oh, well, we used to lionize these these countries and individuals, and, oh, but they also owned slaves, or they also murdered countless civilians. Like, well, how do we reconcile those two? And some people go in too far in one direction and say, well, uh, it's okay be- if they did it because they did good things, versus the other 
really hard opinion of, well, they were always evil and we have nothing we need to learn from them. Let's not learn from the past versus a more nuanced, okay, that's where they were at their own time. Let's not have that good old C.S. Lewis chronological snobbery and say that (laughs) since we live here now, we are so much better than them. Let's, Let's apply where they were to how we look at them now. Look at you quoting C.S. Lewis. It's like you listen to the show. <laughs> it's like you listen to MSL. Hey, speaking of am, controversial. Hey, speaking of controversial, let's talk about Frank Miller. Uh, so all jokes aside, um, in my personal opinion, Frank Miller is a legend of the comic book industry. He's one of the greatest writers and particularly artists. I love his artwork of the industry especially of the modern era, especially of like the 80s, 90s time frame. Um, Outside of 300, Miller is known for a number of books. You've probably heard of some of them. Um, Sin City is one of his big ones. His run on Daredevil is that Daredevil year one. Um, Batman year one. I think he also did that Mm -hmm. one. He did a lot of those year one style series Uh, and his work. Uh, the Dark Knight Returns is considered one of the two Watchmen being the other one by Alan Moore. One of two books from the late 80s that proved and started this trend that comic books can be for adults. They're not just for kids. You can write mm-hmm. min- mature, engaging, thoughtful stories also for adults, which bled very nicely into the 90s when everything just became all for grownups anyway, whether they were for children or not. (laughs) What? We took the wrong lesson from all that. We did take the wrong lesson from that. The other lesson, the wrong lesson we took was that every artist could also be a writer. We, some people, I love nineties comics. It's a guilty pleasure of mine, but Rob Liefeld shouldn't have been doing either. He should have just been creating the characters and letting someone else do all the work. What's your really fair? Yeah. What's your take on Miller? What's your thoughts on Frank Miller? Yeah, I love his Daredevil work. It's one of the like most defining parts of his character. Because you look at early Daredevil, and I've read all of it. It's trying to find itself, and it almost never really does until Miller gets there. Like, not to say that he invented everything we care about Daredevil for, because you know. Stanley was there for it, and we have other writers along the way who uh, who contributed. But he's the one who actually made people care about it because Daredevil was more like a legacy. Like, well, it started in the '60s, where you keep going, but like Miller made go. He introduced Elektra and Stick, and all these facets that you look into the Netflix series or uh, what's going on right now with how they're introducing Daredevil back into the MCU. Like that came from him. I love all that. And Dark Knight Returns, I love it for what it is. I don't like some of the impact it's had on people's perceptions of Batman and whether or not he should kill or whether or not, you know, he's always right at the end of the day. It's like, Batman's just a man at the end of the day. Like, he can screw up too. He's not always going to beat Superman. He's not always going to have kryptonite on his person. It is what it is. But, like, (laughs) I enjoy what he does there. I haven't read Sin City. I've only seen the movie, so I can't speak on that. Sin City is actually my favorite of his. Um, one of my glaring like faults is the fact that I, ha- I have not read the Daredevil run. I need to mm. prioritize that at some point, but there's always more books to read in the comic book world. Sin City is one of my favorites. Uh, the Big Fat Kill is specifically the book that I like. Um, and this is, you know, having watched you've seen the movie right yes it's pretty much verbatim it's similar to the watch Zack snyder's watchman movie where it's like 90 percent accurate to the book one of the few times when reading the book or watching the movie is actually interchangeable it's that's pretty much the case with the first sin city movie uh i don't know about dame to kill for i haven't got i haven't watched that one yet but The thing about Miller, you know, he's he's crucial to the comic book industry, you know, groundbreaking work. Like you said, basically made Daredevil into the character that we know him today is that particularly from a modern reflection. Did not age well 
a lot of his stuff did not age well or wasn't well from the get-go you look at like holy terror even before that book came out it was being labeled for islamophobia because it is yes uh dark knight returns 300 both highlighting authoritarianism putting authoritarianism into a very positive light 300 and sin city both exposing or putting a a positive light on hyper masculinity and you know toxic masculinity as kind of this you know this thing that is okay as long as the right people are doing it is often often how it's left you know if the bad people are doing it it's kind of like gun it's kind of like the gun argument if the bad people Mm -hmm. are using it then it's bad but if good people are using it well then you know is it really that bad yes it is it is bad (laughs) Mm -hmm. so you know not to critique all of his work and he has owned some of it um in an interview he has regretted He's talked about regretting having written Holy Terror for its Islamophobia. Like he has, he talked about how in an interview, like, yeah, there was a lot of hate that went into that book. And I, I, I can't go back to that book now. Good. Learning and growing. That's what you hope from yes. a person. Um, but looking at 300, you know, this does bring a positive light to authoritarianism. It does bring a positive light to hypermasculinity this like you know these are the men you look at the spartans those are the real men you know that's kind of this idea of hypermasculinity you know super strong beefy gonna do what they want in battle gonna do what they want with their women and their slaves and their boys that's a yes. hard sentence to say um so christian as Christ- Christians, as believers, um, as we as we engage this kind of content, and we're you know have people who really idolize still the Spartan the Spartan way or whatever. Like, what do you do with that? What do you do with like hyper masculinity, knowing that we're not going to arrive to a conclusion here? We're not going to solve the problem yes. today. I mean, the Barbie movie did help us understand that the patriarchy is not about horses. And so we all lost a lot of interest because of it in the patriarchy, not in the Barbie movie. Lost a lot of interest in the patriarchy because it's not about horses. But to contribute to this conversation, like, what do we do with this? Because it's in the church. It's that classic case of there is a good thing that is being blown way out of proportion for where it should be. Like, men are told in Scripture to act a certain way, to be in charge, to love their wives, to uh, control their family in a loving manner. And then you have pharisaical, legalistic, and other ways of interpreting that come in and bleed into the church and say, well, a real man doesn't show feelings. You know, uh, a real man will, you know, not give his wife everything she wants because he's got to show her who's in charge or, you know, every now and then he'll give her a good old smack in the lip or what have you, because, you know, he's got to remind her who's there, you know, like who's number one. And no, he's going to love her still, but like, he's going to keep her in line. It's like taking something that meant for good, God delivered for how a healthy loving marriage is supposed to be and how men are supposed to act in the church and then twisting it into something else. It was, it's just classic, I mean, a way of, you know, Satan and demons working against us. It's like taking a good idea and then saying, well, what if you did it this way? I mean, you're still doing this, right? But, uh, but just apply it this way. Or people who were never really Christians in the church having a culture and thinking they were and then ruining it for everyone else. And then other Christians not doing anything about it because, well, there are guys, so we're not going to say anything. We're not going to intervene. It's not my problem. And then yeah. what do we do with that? Well, we, we've got to figure out how do we change? What do we need to change? What needs to not change? And then learn how to get back in the scripture and say, oh, what, what does God actually say about this? Not what I have been told God has said about this. 
I think another way to like to better understand, you know, because we're always going to have these movies, you know, there's a long history yeah. of these very masculine films, you know, take your pick, Braveheart, Gladiator, um, you know, Saving Private Ryan. Like we all have these movies that we look up to, The Last Samurai. And, you know, like I said back at the beginning, if you take any positive away from this movie, camaraderie, you know, working with men in a group, that's an actual positive that you can walk away from this movie. Same with like Saving Private Ryan. Um, but I think what could help again, can't can't come up with all the solutions. I think what could help, though, is to we need to start having a healthy realization that what is being depicted in these movies is a romanticized exaggeration of mm-hmm. masculinity. You know, this is not fact. This isn't biblical by any stretch of the imagination. Not even close. Um, so to, you know, yeah, this is coming from a guy who used to be a host on systematic ecology. Like, you know, you, you, you chew the meat, you spit the bad, mm. but we don't want to actually do that. We just want to, you know, I, I, Full, full hardly believe that many Christians just want to know, is it bad or not? You know, they just want to know, should I engage or should I not? They don't, the, the nuance of it is hard. Nuance is hard. Conversations are difficult to arrive at a well thought out perspective. Yeah, there's a lot of boobs and violence in this movie. So it's not for kids. And if that's something that you can't handle, don't watch the movie. This is not an endorsement for the movie. Um, But to with any of these films, like we need to have more of a nuanced conversation of not just idolizing like that's it. That's the men. Now I'm going to make that fit with the Bible. But instead, look for what is good if there is any and disregard all of this, like you were talking about this stuff that gets into the church of like this authoritarianism of I'm right because I'm a man. That's that's the whole argument. That's it. Um, I think it also might be helpful for people to go read Frank Miller's interviews when this movie came out, because I was reading some of it in preparation for this episode and he didn't want people to walk away from this movie loving the Spartans. That wasn't the point. The failed in, massively. Didn't go great. It's clear that we we misunderstood the assignment, or Zack Snyder yes. did one or the other. Um, but in Miller's mind, yeah, maybe they were the ones trying to defend their freedom, which is a very American thing to get behind. But they're not good people. Persia had its highs. Persia had its lows. So to understand that, like, even in Frank Miller's mind, like the end goal isn't to become a Spartan is kind of an important piece of information to know. Yeah. Well, that too, like this conflict in the film between the Greeks and the Persians, we we come from a very Western point of view. And that you know, the Greeks were the ones who created democracy, and that's the, it's the most American thing you could possibly do. And the, the Greeks were the proto-Americans. And you, then you look at when, how the Persian Empire was actually run. It was still one leader, but there was religious tolerance. Well, how do you think the Jews were able to worship one god? Well, because the the Persian emperors knew enough to, okay, don't mess with people that way. Just make sure they pay their taxes and fight in my armies, and we're golden. So they were able to come back to Israel and rebuild. They were able to worship God. That's a beautiful thing. That's not brought up in the film because, you know, obviously Jewish people not being a huge part of the Battle of Thermopylae. But if you just look at the Persians as, oh, they're this invading force, they're evil because they're foreign – and they're going to take our democratic ways from us, and we're going to save people. You're losing everything out of this. A real man would stand up to this. And, well, yeah, if you remove 
everything out of context of history, a real man would stand up for freedom. A real man would stand up for loving other people and making sure they were safe from being under tyranny. But you can't say the Spartans are the good guys simply because they come from Greece, simply because we like a lot of the values that came from that area. Yeah, we like we like having a clear good guy and a clear bad guy. This, again, uh-huh. gets into the whole, you know, we prefer things without nuance. We just want to know who's the bad guy, who's the good guy. The good guys are the ones with democracy. The bad guys are the one with the bald king, like, clearly. Um, but you're right. And, I mean, it's right there in the Bible. We know that the Persians were good to the Jewish people. It's right there. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, like... Cyrus makes his decree at the end of, is that Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, like we get, we get the, the stuff's in the Bible. Like we know that Persia is actually for, you know, again, an invading, invading country has war, very, you know, Zoroasticism, all of that, but still very religiously tolerant letting the Jews, the Jewish people having a cultural identity, go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall. Like it's like we threw all of that out the window as soon as the movie started. Okay. The Greeks are the good guys because proto America. Mm -hmm. So we talked about, so I think we've covered this movie well at this point. And we've talked a lot about the cultural impact of all of this. One other area we're covering, like I said, is the impact on the New Testament. So, Christian, I know that the Battle of Thermopylae, obviously this isn't in the Bible at all, and it's a small part in what is actually a very big war between Greece and Persia. How does, if at all, this war affect the context of the New Testament? Like, There's so much. The fact that the Greeks are able to stand and start to unify to an extent is what enables them to eventually be taken over by Alexander the Great, who would then go conquer Persia, who would then go conquer Judea, and start the idea of Hellenization, that being turning things a bit more Greek in structure, that lasts over the entire Middle East, that goes through Egypt and beyond, uh, and to eventually the Romans taking that very same idea. We like these Greek ideas. We're going to take them and steal them and make them our own, much like we talked last time with you know, them taking Greek deities as their own and appropriating them for themselves, but putting a Roman spin on them. Well, they, same idea with Hellenization. There was a very big Romanization of the world. And that comes from that same idea of we can in- influence these cultures to be like us. Therefore, they will essentially be us. That leads up to the New Testament, where Greek as a common language is spread because of how useful it is. Almost everyone knows Greek because of Hellenization. So you have the gospel being spread in the common tongue of a lot of people that wouldn't exist without a moment like this where Greek is able, uh, excuse me, Greece is able to stand up against a much larger nation and beat them back and eventually take over that entire empire. Which then goes into a very interesting what-if scenario. And I know you systematic ecology people, you like your what-ifs. And the what-if is, of course, what if this wasn't the only battle Greece lost? What if Greece did lose the Persian War and Persia conquered Greece? Like, everything is different then. The whole the whole thing is different. There is no common Greek language that everyone is speaking and the New Testament is written in. It's probably what would that be? Some form of Aramaic more than likely. Yeah. You know, the Phoenician some. Yeah. Aramaic Phoenician type of language. Sorry. What was the question? I only heard half of it. I'm sorry. Oh, apologies. I said, you know, if the if the Greeks lose to Persia. You know, that changes mm-hmm. everything. Like, yes. It's, and it's staggering to think, like, if Persia takes over Greece, does Rome still 
take over Persia? Does Rome look at the way Persia does things and shifts their ways of doing things to a more Persian? Like everything is different when Jesus is on the scene and the church is being born. If Greece loses. Yes. I mean, for all we know, Carthage could become the next main power. Hmm. And you have a world of conflict between them and the Persians. And as Rome is becoming more of its own entity, like, well, who of the three there wins? It doesn't look like the Romans would in that scenario. It'd probably be, you know, more Carthage in this situation. Or, you know, the Persians, as we find out in history, you can only expand your empire so far. If you can't control all of it at once, there's going to be rebellions. There's going to be people rising up against you. Or they could have very well lasted up until the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus as the representatives in charge of Judea at that time. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because God would have gotten done what he needed to get done. The name sure. just would have been different. Yeah. Would have been different. Still would have had some form of Jesus paying the penalty for our sins and the resurrection. Boy. That cultural change would have looked a lot different. (laughs) Oh, yes. All right. There is one last bit as we start to draw this episode to a close. So maybe there's not a very direct, indirect, but not a very direct way that this influences the New Testament. There is an Old Testament connection. Possibly. Keeping in mind historians. This King Xerxes that leads the battle against the Greeks for Persia is possibly the same one who marries Esther. Uh-huh. Now, again, this does get into the whole historical, you know, historical people issue. There is also, and most pastors wouldn't touch this with a 10 foot pole. There is some debate among scholars over whether or not Esther is a real person. Purim exists for a reason. And there is some speculation that Esther is a legend that explains how we get Purim and not actually a real person. But the timing of all of this lines up. That's how you can draw this conclusion of when Esther marries a man named Xerxes And when Xerxes leads the battle against Greece, that time period does line up. By the way, Xerxes is also kind of a term like Caesar or Pharaoh, that it's just kind of like a royal term. So there's a lot of asterisks here. But there is possibly a very close connection to Esther with this event. Yeah. I mean, we have in the Jewish tradition, the name is Ahasuerus for what most scholars would say would represent Xerxes. And that's just common with names across ancient cultures. Well, your name in this culture would be this, but because of translation differences Mm -hmm. or because of cultural differences, I would say it's actually pronounced this way because that sounds better to my ears. (laughs) And that would just happen all the time. So there's that, is this actually the same Xerxes we see in the film? Absolutely not, because they can't. It just doesn't work that way. But as far as the Battle of Thermopylae, it seems like the two are very connected. It would be around the same time. This would be, he reigned from, uh, goodness gracious, he stopped around 450-something, if I remember I correctly. So, so this yeah. film takes place in 480 BC. So Esther seems to take place around somewhere in between that 30-some year spread. Yeah, that's interesting. Just a little food for thought. Again, take it to a pinch of salt because ton of asterisks <laughs> attached to that. But it is interesting to think about. All right. Well, that is it for today's episode. Thank you again, Christian, for taking time out to uh, do this. And for you listeners at home, thanks for listening. If you ever want to check out Let Nothing Move You or Systematic Ecology, you can always go down into the description of this episode to find links for that. Uh, If you really enjoyed this episode, please share it with somebody that you think will also enjoy it. And consider sponsoring the show over at buymeacoffee.com slash mslpod. You can make a one-time donation or support one of our tiers. Everyone who supports the show at $9 a month gets a shout out here on the show. So thank you, Lori, for supporting the show. 
All right, we will be back with more Greece. Uh, this will be the last time we see Christian for a while. Thank you for your residency here. Uh, but until next time, this is MSL. I'm Brandon. Reminding you as always that theology is for everyone. So keep on studying.